This is Soundtrack, a music podcast about the music that impacts our lives. Every episode is a conversation of how music has shaped and influenced one's life. Because music is the soundtrack to everyone's story. Soundtrack is hosted by Kyle Lichty. Hey everyone, I'm here with Jason Lay. We're coming live from Grand Rapids. How are you doing? Dude, listen, uh, I'd be... If I was complaining, I'd be lying. In the grand scheme of things, I'm I'm doing okay. I'm doing my best to be positive and optimistic. I know a lot of people have it a lot worse. So rather than give you an inflated answer, I would tell you that I'm thinking about people who need it more than me. Yeah. We first met last uh, Cinco de Mayo. <laughs> <laughs> at our mutual friend's place and how it all started was because I saw you had a Amberlynn jacket. Yeah, yeah, a hoodie, a hoodie, a zip up hoodie. Yeah. And I don't even remember what I asked, but I'm a, I'm an Amberlynn fan and so I I'm sure I asked something about the band and we then ended up talking for a really long time <laughs> about music. <laughs> And since then, we've been to an Amberlynn concert. Yeah. Holy smokes. Yeah. We <laughs> hung out a couple times as well, and, and now yeah. we're doing this. So it's crazy, Music huh? Music really does bring people together. Yeah. Oh, totally. You grew up in Pontiac, Michigan. It's a suburb of Detroit. What was it like to grow up there? Going to school in Pontiac, Michigan in the early 80s, I'm going to be honest, like being a white kid was an anomaly. I went to a, a predominantly black school. My mom was a single mom who worked at General Motors who befriended a black woman who worked at General Motors. Come to find out, her son and I went to the same school. Uh, my man's name was Maronia Preston. And dude, if you're out there, holler at me. It's been a minute. So Maronia Preston and I used to be buds back in fifth grade. So you're talking a black kid in the Pontiac ghetto was now friends with this white nerdy kid. So we would do sleepovers, right? He would sleep over at my house. But I'm going to tell you, the real hook was me spending the night at his house because he had a boombox and he had cassettes and he had Motley Crue and Metallica and Slayer and Whoa. Beastie Boys and he had Easy E and NW yeah. like he was we're talking fifth we're we're in fifth grade but his mom she was she, oh my oh my goodness. This woman was so beautiful, like she took care of her son so well. She created an environment so enticing for him that he would have had no reason to leave the house and go out and get in trouble in the ghetto. So she gave him all of these vices. She gave him music and Nintendo and all sorts of things. So when I started staying the night at Maronia's house, this black kid introduced me to heavy metal. So my first introduction to my own music 
was Motley Crue, Metallica, Poison, and whatever else you want to group into that genre at that time. Yeah. Was there any connection to you with the metal or even the the hip-hop that you were listening to at that time? My mom always listened to music. And it was, you know, back then, we, my brother and I would be in the back seat, strapped in. I think she had a Pontiac Sunbird. And, you know, of course, she's controlling the radio. And it was either Hall & Oates or Rod Stewart. Those were two of her favorites. But it was, at that time, it was whatever was on the radio. So in the 80s, she was listening to the stuff she grew up on. So I, of course, I didn't realize it at the time, but every car ride I took, I'm, of course, I'm absorbing everything I'm listening to. And that stuff truly did not pay dividends until I was in my late 30s. I didn't appreciate what my mom was listening to until I was almost 40. Oh, wow. So, uh, but she was always being a single mom. She obviously had to, she had to pick her battles, right? So if I came home from Maronia's house with a Motley Crue tape, which back then would have had a pentagram on it, Mm -hmm. or an Easy E cassette that would have been F this, F that, she had to pick her battles as a single mom. She knew she was doing an amazing job. I hope she knows she was doing an amazing job raising hopefully a good kid. So it was now on me to take what she taught me and put it to task. So I have to be at, we're talking again, fifth grade. Am I mature enough to take home a Motley Crue cassette and an Easy E cassette and realize that one, I don't have to worship the devil or two, go be a gangbanger to enjoy the music. So uh, she was very involved in everything I was listening to. And she always taught me and reinforced the fact that what I was listening to were lyrics. And this is part of a band and they don't have to always be true. And we don't always have to listen to everything they're saying. So I was I was taught from a very, very early age to discern right from wrong, good from bad, true from false. Next you mentioned uh, the grunge, you know, with Nirvana and, and Pearl Jam. And I'm curious, what was it like at that time to experience that music? That is an amazing question. And crazy <laughs> enough, I can pinpoint it. Because it was that meaningful, at least to me. So up until this point, up until grunge, it was all heavy metal and hair metal. I really didn't stay on the track of hip hop and and rap. For whatever reason, I just gravitated more toward the heavy metal. So I remember it was, I would have been in eighth grade playing basketball at the YMCA in Defiance, Ohio, and a friend of a friend came up to me and he put his headphones on my head with his Sony Discman in his hands, right? Mm -hmm. So for you kids out there, this is a machine that played a compact disc portably. So this was pre-iPod. 
So mm-hmm. he puts the, he puts these headphones on me because he knew that I was I was into heavy metal, and he goes, "Dude, you have to hear this." And he puts the headphones on me, and he starts playing "Smells Like Teen Spirit." First time I'd ever heard it. First time I'd ever heard anything that was not what I had already grown up listening to. And all I can tell you is that I could I, goosebumps hit. And I could feel my entire psyche shift. I couldn't, of course, I couldn't understand anything Kurt Cobain was saying. Yeah. But I felt it. And for whatever reason, like it synced itself, it attached itself to my body and didn't leave. And I was blown away. The closest thing I can, can compare it to is when you listen to people talk about the first time maybe they heard the Beatles or Elvis or Led Zeppelin, right? Mm -hmm. All they can tell you, it was unlike anything else they had ever heard prior. So the first time I heard Smells Like Teen Spirit, it was a game changer. I didn't know to what extent. All I knew that was at that time, I was different because it was so sonically and audibly unlike anything else I had ever heard. Yeah. And all I wanted to do after I saw the the Teen Spirit video and then the video for Even Flow by Pearl mm-hmm. Jam, yeah. all I wanted to do was wear shitty flannels that didn't match anything. <laughs> and I wanted to be a lead singer in a band that jumped off from the balcony into the crowd. That's all I wanted to do. Of course. You have a really cool story about how you met Dave Grohl. <laughs> yeah. The first and only time I have ever seen Foo Fighters was on their very first club tour. I'll preface this story by telling you that I was also very fortunate to have seen Nirvana. I saw oh, Nirvana. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I saw you didn't know that? No, I had no idea. Oh yeah. Nirvana was my second concert ever. Wow. I was in tenth grade, saw Nirvana on in utero. I saw him at the Detroit State Fairgrounds. And okay, so this would have been October, October ninety-three. I saw Nirvana. Yeah. Which obviously puts Dave Grohl on my radar when I find out at whatever age I was, maybe six, I was probably 17 when the first Foo Fighters record came out. And I'll also tell you that I believe if memory serves, and I could be butchering this, but I feel like the Foo Fighters record came out on my birthday, which is July 4th. And I remember regardless of what day it came out, I remember standing outside in my own one person line outside of Harmony House in Waterford, Michigan, the day the Foo Fighters record was released, because I wanted the record that the drummer from Nirvana produced. It did come out on July 4th. Did it? Yeah. Holy shit. Are you serious? 1995. Oh, Okay, so my memory isn't as bad as I thought. Okay, so 
Holy shit, that's amazing. That just gave me goosebumps. Okay, so I waited by myself against no one outside of Harmony House on my birthday in 1995 to get this record. I believe I saw it. I think I would have seen them in 96. Maybe I saw them in 95. So I saw them, saw them on their first tour and they were playing obviously a tiny, tiny, tiny club tour. This show was at St. Andrews Hall in Detroit, Michigan. Yeah. And I've, it, it's, I've seen, I've been very fortunate to see a lot of bands from that era at St. Andrews before they blew up. So went to the show, saw Foo Fighters, but I went to the show by now, this was not my first live concert, right? I'd, I'd probably been to a few dozen concerts. And at that time, I would have been 16 years old. I would have had my driver's license because I went to the show by myself. I go early by myself with the hope of meeting Dave Grohl. Go early, no luck. So I'm just the kid in shorts and a t-shirt standing outside the club before the show opens, hours before it opens. Then one of the first kids in the show. So we go through the entire show. It was amazing. Come out of the show. All I want to do, all I want, I am not going home until I meet Dave Grohl. So I just sit on the front steps of St. Andrews in Detroit. And if you've ever been there, it's not a huge porch. There's not, it's yeah. just, you can maybe get 20 people on those steps if you're pushing. So mm -hmm. sitting there with the intention to meet Dave Grohl, and I've parked my ass on these steps. Everyone from the club, they've left. It's now pushing three in the morning. And I know, I know Dave Grohl has not left the building because I was one of those kids who scoped it out. I was my own surveillance team. And I, I knew with 100% confidence he had not left the building. And I stayed there. And it was cold and dark. And uh, I'm, I'm in shorts and a t-shirt. And finally, Dave Grohl comes out of St. Andrews. And he comes walking down the front step. And I turned around expecting to see like another security guard or who, whatever bartender finally going home. And it's mm -hmm. him. And I freaked out and I'm like, holy shit, you're Dave Grohl. And he's like, yeah, man, who are you? Tell him my name. And he's like, what in the hell are you doing? And I'm like, I'm waiting to meet you. And he's like, you've been waiting a long time. I think you've earned it. Come on, follow me. Let's go. And I like inside, I'm, sh I'm like, I'm shaking. I can't, I can't even process what's happening right now. And we, we literally, we walk off the steps of St. Andrews, we walk right around the club and there's a parking lot that's at St. Andrews. And there is, I believe it was a red van parked in the parking lot. And he's like, get in. He unlocks my door, shotgun, and I get in the van with Dave Grohl. He gets in the driver's seat and starts the van. He straight up says, he's like, you've waited this long. What do you want to ask me? And he was cool as a fan. And I'm, I'm freaking out being a drummer. I just try, tried to shoot the shit about drumming and playing live and what he liked playing and what he didn't like playing. 
and how it was recording the first Foo Fighters album, playing every instrument all by himself. And so we legit hung out. He let me hang out with him at least a half an hour. He told me stories and I listened and I asked questions and he answered more. And now to see him like being larger than life, how he is now, I'm telling you back in 95 or 96, whenever I saw him, he was the same dude. Like when I yeah. see him on TV today, he hasn't changed. He autographed my Nirvana CDs. He autographed the first Foo Fighter CD to me. And then like when he made sure that I had asked every question I wanted to ask, I excused myself. He stayed until I was satisfied. Hmm. Yeah. And I haven't seen them I know, man. I'm trying to remember from our last time we hung out where I know I I had tickets for Foo Fighters, but I, I think oh. you were thinking about getting tickets. And then unfortunately, it's now it's postponed. Yeah. But did you see did you see Dave's message to everyone when he canceled it? I think I do, but I don't I don't remember oh. much. Oh, on my it. goodness. Go read Dave Grohl's tour cancellation announcement. It is as badass as he is. <laughs> it's, it, it's super simple, but he just basically says like, listen, hey, we're going to table this right now. And then we're going to come back and we're going to make it up. And you're going to be cool. And we're going to be cool. And we're going to come back and we're going to kick your ass. And I don't know if there's another dude out there in the rock scene who's just as authentically cool as he is. Dude's a badass. Yeah, man. I mean, how badass is he when he, you know, has got a broken foot and still doing a full-on tour for months? <laughs> it's awesome. Everyone else would have thrown in the towel and canceled it. I have a friend from Sweden. He said that he was at the show where, he, where the incident happened just south of Stockholm, and he kept playing. <laughs> yeah, he fell off the stage, and I think they might have like rushed him back, and he just said, take the damn thing up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the di like, but you know what? Like, Listen, like, it's amazing because he's not – he is the epitome of a modern-day rock star, and that doesn't mean – you have to have your nose over a line of Coke to be a rock star. Like he's just, he's a good dude mm -hmm. who plays good music and does like the right honorable thing. Even if maybe it could have like sacrificed his, his leg forever. But like, if that's the more most hardcore thing Dave Grohl's going to do, that's still pretty badass. Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. That's so like your friend being at that show that guy will tell that story for as long as he lives oh, yeah. in some oh. in somebody somebody will get it somebody mm -hmm. will understand how awesome it was to have been there right so high school ends what, what's yeah. going on what's going on in your life and then what what kind of music <laughs> are you are you listening to Okay, so so here's where the story starts to pivot. As high school ends and college begins, I was dating 
an incredibly sweet and kind girl. At that time, I was so in love with. She was such a good person. She helped pave the way for who I am today. And we, we don't have to get into that more than the fact that I loved this girl. We dated for four plus years and toward the last year and a half-ish, I started to really become a shitty person. And she was going to college at a university in Michigan. And I was still at home in Waterford going to a local community college. And during that time, I became attracted to another girl and I cheated on this girlfriend who I had been dating for four years. And right at that time, precisely at that time, I started listening to Morrissey's album, Box Hall and I. And I can't quite pinpoint the first time I listened to this album, but what I can tell you is that when I did listen to this album, this was probably the first album I ever listened to that started talking back to me. It wasn't a one-way street. It wasn't just me listening to the album and, oh, I like these songs. I would listen to it. And while I was listening to it, these songs were a real-time conversational reflection with myself, about myself, about how and what I had done to this particular girl. and. That's really when music started to become legitimately emotional. And so this album, Box Hall and I, ended up, like, I, I started carrying this into college with me. So I was attending community college while the girlfriend was at a state college in Michigan, cheated on her with this girl who I met at community college. So then I moved to Michigan State University to start going to school there. And I had still, I was still dating the girl I cheated on the first girl on with. Does that make sense? Yeah. And then I cheated on her. And yeah, ladies and gentlemen, listen, not one of my proudest moments, but it's part of my story. Yeah. And so this album even more so reinforced how conceited and selfish I was because every time I listened to this album, like there were nights in college, you know, that I cried myself to sleep listening to this album, reflecting about all of the dumb shit I did to get myself to that point. So the music started to shift once I was unfaithful to this girlfriend and then moved to college. Did the album, did it help you resolve anything? I think it put a Band-Aid on it. I, I think it allowed me to get to the next phase. That album for me is a very personal album. I believe everything we listen to does exactly what it's supposed to do. And this was the first album that did, like from start to finish, that does that. As far as reconciling anything, shit. I, 
I don't know if I'll figure this out before I die. All I can tell you is that I try to be a little bit more reflective and considerate of the next move I make based on the last one. But I'll tell you that that album, Vauxhall and I, was the first one that made me at all consider my last move. What were you doing after your time at Michigan State? I do Michigan State and... You know, during this time, I'm st- I'm listening to a lot of different different artists. I'm starting to dive deeper into the stuff that maybe I started listening to toward the end of high school because it's still fresh, it's still new, and it's still following me. The bands I was listening to at the time are still making records. Yeah, they're still um, relevant. Yeah, yeah, for sure. They, for sure, Deftones was and is still one of my most favorite bands easily in my top five so their second album around the fur came out be quiet and drive played and it was you know it's it was one of the songs on the album that was a for me it was a an opportunity to kind of catch your breath and that song felt like I could take that song and whether it was by myself or with whoever I was dating at the time, which to this point, unfortunately, doesn't matter. But at the time it did, like we could, wherever we were, just grab our stuff, pack it up, throw it in the car and go and just get away from everything else. And, and we could start over. Mm-hmm. So that is a band that has stayed with me in that time of my life. That was the song that helped me get there. And through Deftones, literally, I found a singer-songwriter named Jonah Matranga. At the time, he was the singer for a band called Far, who was also from Sacramento, uh, which is where Deftones is from. Okay. Uh, Deftones and Far were on the same record label, obviously from the same hood. So these two dudes knew each other. I was on, I was hanging out with Deftones on their bus, funny enough, outside of St. Andrews, I was talking to Chino, the singer from the Deftones, and he asked me if I'd heard of this band called Far. I said, nope. And so he hands me a CD and he said, take this home, listen to it. It's your new favorite band. He gave me Far's first CD, Tin Cans and a string to you. So I take that home, listen to listen to that album, fall in love with this band called Far. Far breaks up. And the singer of Far, Jonah Matranga, starts this solo project under the monkeyer One Line Drawing. Then One Line Drawing releases a couple like hyper, hyper independent EPs. And then he releases Uh, this album called Visitor. On this album, Visitor is a song called Your Letter. Uh, I I don't think there is any other song that exists that I listen to and cannot get through it without crying. Hmm. Your Letter was this end cap to my time up until that point. It was, Your Letter was this just like Boxhall and I talked to me, this song did that as well. 
And it made me reflect on the fact that wherever I was at that time, probably screwing up another relationship with another good girl that frankly, let's be honest, it was my fault. It was always my fault. So that song was, was kind of the, um, the book end to that era. I'd like to think like we've all been there in our own way. So if I can quick fast forward, I leave college, I get my first big boy job at Alternative Press Magazine. So I leave Michigan State, East Lansing, where I'd been for five years. And for the first time, I really move away from home and I move to Cleveland. And I've got this amazing job at, at AP, at Alternative Press. It's awesome, right? You're a music magazine where yeah. bands and record labels send all of their stuff to you because they want you to listen to it and review it and then put that band on the cover. So there, there was this, this thing where once all these CDs come in and once the editors listen to the CDs and they're done with them, they all go on the kitchen table. And once something hits the kitchen table, it's a free-for-all. It's up for grabs. Mm-hmm. So I just randomly grabbed this band, Anne Berlin's first CD, Blueprints for the Black Market. This band, Anne Berlin, was a much more positive pivot. So I didn't know it at the time, but you follow Anne Berlin, if you know about them, like, like I'm not pulling the curtain back on you to tell you that, yes, they have roots in Christian music. I didn't know it at the time, but all I can tell you is that listening to Blueprints for the Black Market for the first time, not knowing this band, this album just makes you feel good. Yeah. It made me feel good. And there was something about it that I couldn't put my finger on, but I knew li- listening to this music made me feel enthusiastic about life. And it, it kind of like opened up and shone light on the darkness that I knew I was carrying up until then. So I continued listening to Anne Berlin. So uh, a song on their third album, Cities, Dismantle Repair, was the song that kind of made me really check myself and start to change. There was one question I had was, what were you doing at the Alternative Press specifically? Were you writing? Were you touring? I was pretty young. I was in my early 20s. And I had been reading AP for a little while. And I saw that they had a job posting for advertising sales. I had, I, I had no idea what an advertising sales representative meant. I, no idea. But all I knew is I'm like, well, shit, if I get my foot in the door doing whatever it is, then I can write and then I can go on tour and follow my favorite bands and write their story and tell everybody about them. Right. So I came on board at AP doing ad sales, which I'll be honest, like afforded me a lot of really amazing opportunities working for AP. I, I mean, all of the value at that time was in the fringe benefits. In the two years I was there, I went to about 100 shows for free 
on the guest list, hanging out backstage, meeting all of my favorite bands. And truth be told, it was two of the worst years of my life. At that point in time in my life, I didn't know where I was mentally, psychologically. I was not in a healthy relationship. I didn't know who I was. I didn't have an identity yet. And I drank a lot. And my drinking caused a lot of problems for me, both personally and professionally at that time. And I'll be honest, I hijacked my career at AP with my drinking because I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be an editor and I wanted to learn from them. It was right place, wrong time, Mm. if that makes sense. Yeah. So I got to write a couple guest spots that made it into a couple issues, but because of my drinking and my behavior associated with my drinking, if I wouldn't have quit when I did to move back to Michigan, they would have and absolutely should have fired my ass for the stuff I was trying to get away with that I personally tolerated and thought I could get away with because I was usually dr- drunk to the point where I didn't care about it anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, if I, that is definitely a season in my life where if I could go back and rewrite it, I absolutely would. I yeah. 100% would because I had an amazing opportunity. I will say I totally squandered it. We were talking about Amber Lynn. That's how we started. That's how we became yeah. friends. It's crazy. It's interesting that there are elements of Amberlynn musically. It, they're such a interesting band to me because instrumentally they're more on kind of a metal side, but then when you've got Stevens' vocals to it, it's nothing like any other metal band. Yeah, uh, you know, in terms of vocals, and so you've got this really interesting you know, two elements going on at the same time. So that's what was appealing to me was I, I for me, I, I wasn't really into metal, even though I liked the, the instrumental parts of it, but I, I wasn't always into the vocals. And that's, so that's what drew me to Amberlynn was uh, having this intensity to the music, but yet something that I felt like I could sing along to. What was it about for you that was so appealing about Amberlynn? Probably pretty pretty similar to you. The music, the grooves, the riffs. For me, like everything they wrote on that first album, Blueprint, probably even more so on the second album, Never Take Friendship Personal. Like everything was for me so catchy and melodic and sing alongable. Yeah. It was very sing alongable. And it was one of those albums. It might have been the first band. I listened to where the music was as intense as it was. We have to be very careful in in how we compare, how we frame intense, right? Because Anne Berlin is not Pantera. It's not, it's not Cannibal Corpse, right? (laughs) But the music drives, the riffs are good. The vocals are very agreeable in terms of, uh, it's very easy to latch on to Steven's voice, his lyrics, 
and the melodies and sing along with it. And I think in hindsight, so many kids listen to shit and they're, they're not thinking about the lyrics. They're not thinking about the message. And I'm going to be honest, a lot of stuff they're listening to, I'm glad that that's the case. Because a lot of stuff out today, I'm sure I sound like a boomer or some <laughs> old man who wants you off of his lawn. But listen, if you're listening to top 40 music on the radio today, it's probably dog shit. And I'm sorry if you like it but there's probably not a ton of substance behind it. And if it's got auto-tune on top of it, there's a reason for it. Okay, commentary, done. So going back to Anne Berlin, I think I started singing along to it in my car before I knew how special it was or how much yeah. I needed it. And when I really, obviously, when you start singing along to it so much and so often, and like I, that first CD blueprints, I wore that thing out, but it was, it was this subtle underlying foundation that all of these songs are good. They're positive and they're encouraging. And I was listening to one of the, the most positive best albums I could have ever been exposed to that I have ever been exposed to in one of the darkest, worst times in my life. Yeah. And I think subconsciously I latched onto it simply because I needed to. Yeah. That's really cool. Something else I, I think too, like it not only, you know, you mentioned positive, but the, that I find kind of intriguing that you haven't mentioned that there's a lot of songs dealing with relationships. Yeah. 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 I mean, you got feel good drag paper thin him that are yeah. dealing with these uh, issues of, of a relationship with a significant other and uh, different issues that come with dating. And I do not want to put words in the Steven's mouth because he can do that a lot better than I can. But for me, he like he delivered he uh, Amberlin delivered the same heartbreak or maybe the same optimism or the same reflection as anything else I had ever listened to, but he just did it in in maybe a more mature, peaceful, empathetic way that just cared a little bit more for that person and yourself. And again, man, that like I needed that virtual hug at that time. Yeah. I, I feel like in a way, is it true to say that in some ways, like Amberlynn changed the trajectory of your life? One, uh, 100%. And so like, okay, so now I'm going <laughs> to... Yeah. Um, yeah, they did. You know, full transparency. Uh, I've been friends with the dudes from Anne Berlin since the very first time I saw them when I was still at Alternative Press, when they were still touring on Blueprints. And since then, I've maintained a friendship with them. And 
a friendship with Stephen so much, in fact, that I have gone on a double date with Stephen. Oh, wow. And those times are really, really personal for me, including the time when Anne Berlin had to ask me to leave one particular situation where I was backstage. And at that time, I still had not controlled my drinking. And I was backstage with some friends and I was very intoxicated and I ruined a moment. Stephen had so much decency, so much grace and so much love for me that he helped me remove myself from that situation where most people would have taken a much lower, easier road in kicking me out. Yeah. And I have so much respect for that man today for the way he conducted himself with me when I was at one of the lowest points in my life. I will always go to bat for that band and for him. It's been a minute. We've hung out. Certainly, you know, we've seen them since then. Yeah. On their farewell tour at the intersection. And it was, you know, like, like it sucks to name drop, but like this, this, so the story goes, like they play this, they play their going away tour and they, you know, they're, they're playing everything across their entire catalog. And they ended the last song on that tour was the first song on the first album, right? This is the first song on our new album, right? It's that whole Beastie Boys thing. So the last song they played was the first song on their first album, Ready Fuels. At the intersection in Grand Rapids on that tour, as he introduces the last song they're playing on their what's you know what's supposed to be their breakup tour this song goes out to everyone who was with us from the beginning and he's out in the audience right now this song goes out to Jason Lay and i'm telling you man i was so stoked right when he did that i'm sure like it means nothing to everybody else, but it absolutely validated why I fell in love with them in the first place. Yeah. That's the story <laughs> of me and Anne Berlin. Do you know how many times you've seen him live? Not enough. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe 10, 10 ish, give or take. Yeah. I will take Anne Berlin to my grave. That's awesome. After Cleveland, where did you end up? So I was in Cleveland for two years. Not the greatest place in mental space, but a very positive, beautiful thing happened to me that started to get me out of that. And while I was in Cleveland, I got a phone call from my brother and he told me that he was going to have a son that I was going to be an uncle and I'm going to try really hard not to break down at this point. But I will tell you that while I was in Cleveland and while I was drinking myself into a really dark place, and then I found out that I was going to be an uncle that immediately was another pivot in my life that I couldn't have forecasted or planned for. 
at that moment, I realized my life was bigger than me. And I had something at that point, I had something bigger than me to live for. So at that point in my life, I started kind of uh, self-calibrating and realigning because I did not want to screw up being an uncle. And I'd like to think that while 14 years later, one of the few things I have not screwed up in my life is being an uncle. So shout out to my nephew, Jaden, for changing my life permanently for the better. So I get this call. I'm going to be an uncle. I was burying myself in Cleveland. And so I, I pulled the eject cord and I got myself out of Cleveland. I came back. I, I moved back to Waterford, Michigan, where I swore I would never come back to. And I moved in with my brother when my nephew was born. And I lived with my brother and I helped raise my beautiful little nephew for the first few months of his life. And holy smokes, it was life-changing. But during that time, while I was living with my brother, uh, helping raise my nephew, I met my wife. That's where the next phase in this journey picks up. At this time, you met your eventual wife, Catherine. Yeah. What was going on at that time? And uh, were there elements of music that were impacting your life with that relationship? Oh my goodness. I had a cubicle buddy who I became really good friends with. I threw a 30th surprise birthday party for this guy. I invited everyone he knew, including the girl he had just started dating. Because she was new to him and his family, I told her, please, 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 you know, bring a wingman, bring a friend. And If your friend happens to be female, educated, and no baggage, uh, perfect. And she brought brought exactly who I asked for. She brought my wife. Wow. So I met Catherine while playing host for my buddy's 30th birthday party. A week after that, two weeks after that, we went and saw the band Gym Class Heroes together at a college in Ohio. And what's funny is the guy I was friends with at the time, he was very big into OAR of a revolution. Yeah. And so he kind of got me hooked into OAR. Come to find out, OAR was Catherine's favorite band. So <laughs> as soon as Catherine and I clicked and bonded, We had this band we were both mutually fans of. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Quite quite a story. (laughs) When did you and Catherine get married? We got married in July of 2010. So when we met, it was April 2008, proposed in January 2009, We were engaged for all of 2009 before I moved to Grand Rapids in January slash February of 2010. So, uh, yeah, we will be married for 10 years 
this July. Wow. Congrats, man. Oh, uh, thanks. Honestly, it's been the easiest, quickest 10 years of my life. Oh, yeah? Oh, it, yeah. Uh, it is largely her, but uh, being married to her, being married to her, I'm sure is much easier than being married to me. <laughs> Uh, she just she she makes it very easy to be married. So you moved to Grand Rapids. Yep, to marry her. Yep. What's what's going on at that time, and what artists are impacting your life? So when I moved to Grand Rapids, she actually helped me get my uh, my first job in the city. So this will only make sense if you know Grand Rapids, but my first job in the city was being the general manager of both nightclubs at the Bob, known as the big old building. Uh, I was the GM of Crush on the first floor and Eve on the top fourth floor. I had to be in two places at once and I had to babysit at least a thousand drunk, obnoxious adults a night. I would go into work sometimes as early as 3 p.m. And sometimes it, well, it would not be uncommon for me to leave work after the sun had already come up the following day. My wife's a teacher and it was not uncommon for me to be pulling in the driveway as she was leaving to go teach school. So it was a job. The silver lining to that job was the fact that in two years, I think two or three years, it afforded me the opportunity to meet all of the movers and shakers in West Michigan. Because anyone who's anyone who wanted to go out at night and wanted to be seen had to go, had to come to one of the clubs I managed. So if anyone wanted a favor, they had to go through me. And I don't say that as, as an ego stroke. I say that literally, like if someone wanted to cut a line, I had to approve it. Right. So I, yeah. So I had to meet the people who were asking for favors. Fortunately, a lot of those favors turned into authentic relationships today where I can go to a lot of places in Grand Rapids and know that I will be taken care of because I took care of somebody there a decade ago, which blows yeah. my mind. So, so from that standpoint, I was very fortunate. But for those two years I worked at the Bob, it about killed me. I am not wired for that, and I didn't love it. And I had a very low tolerance for bullshit which made me the very unpopular general manager because I didn't tolerate any bullshit from the employees or from the guests. Yeah. So during that time, I was preparing for my wedding. And so I discovered this artist, Donovan Frankenreiter. And I, <laughs> so, uh, so what's funny is, remember how I told you that the first time, like the first concert I went to with Catherine was Gym Class Heroes. So Gym Class Heroes were on a movie soundtrack for the Oscar award-winning film 
snakes on a plane. So because I was a fan of gym class heroes, I picked up the soundtrack for snakes on a plane. And on the soundtrack was this song called lovely day by this dude with a jacked up last name, Donovan Frankenreiter. This was definitely the song that did not belong on that soundtrack. This song, Lovely Day, look it up. It will make you feel good immediately. This mm -hmm. song ended up being the song that I recommended that Catherine and I walk out of our wedding ceremony to. So it's, uh, do you? Yes, do you? Yes. I pronounce you husband and wife, kiss each other, now walk out. And we walked out to lovely day. So on our first wedding anniversary, a year later, we flew to Isle of Palms, South Carolina to watch Donovan Frankenreiter perform back-to-back -back nights at this dive beach bar called the Windjammer in 2011. And we hung out with the dude. And it oh, wow. was, oh my gosh, it was, it was incredible. During that trip, Donovan, who was a professional surfer for Billabong, taught me how to surf. He played Lovely Day for us the second night we saw him. Just by accident, I fell in love with Donovan Frankenreiter. So mm -hmm. just like Anne Berlin changed my life, so did Donovan. And Donovan led the pivot to probably where I am today in my, my musical taste. What was it about this artist that helped you, you know, pivot? I think Anne Berlin kind of, they volleyed it for me. They, like, they volleyed it for Donovan to pick it up and then spike it. If Lovely Day is the only song you listen to by Donovan, which shouldn't be the only song you listen to after you listen to Lovely Day, start with the album, pass it around. It's positive, it's optimistic, it's feel good. And so now at this time, when I'm planning my wedding with Catherine, I'm also working this job that is working me into the ground that's just tearing me apart because of the hours, the demand, the shit I had to put up with. This song gave me hope that what I'm in is not where I'm going to be forever. So Donovan, so at this time, uh, Pandora, Pandora music was a thing, right? So first thing I do, I start a Lovely Day or Donovan playlist. And then what comes through my playlist is this band called Dirty Heads. And the first song I hear from Dirty Heads is a song called Lay Me Down. That song is the jam. It was another song off the album that followed that called Spread Too Thin. And that was on their album Cabin by the Sea. Mm. So, so the song Spread Too Thin just talks about being spread too thin by the demands of this life that we think we have to subscribe to. And that's, that's yeah. how I felt when I was at the Bob was like, I was just getting hammered. I was 
physically exhausted because I was getting maybe three hours of sleep at night. I was mentally, emotionally exhausted. And I was just married to my brand new wife. And I couldn't spend any time with her for the first year of our marriage because I was too busy getting the shit kicked out of me, managing two nightclubs full of a bunch of drunk idiots. So Spread Too Thin by Dirty Heads was single-handedly the catalyst that helped me quit my job at the Bob. And I take another job and I'm working at this next job. And I was there for, for a number of years. We had one female on staff and she and I bonded really, really well we would just talk about music and life and all sorts of shit. And then she, of course, we're, we're just like an office away. So everybody in the office is on, um, you know, an internal messaging system. And she messages me. She's like, you need to listen to this song. And she sends me Style by Taylor Swift. And it was the first Taylor Swift song I had ever listened to from start to finish. And there was something about it that just clicked. And at this time, I'm mid-30s. But this song tapped into something that I had not felt since I was 17, 18, 19, 20. And it was this feeling of, yeah, it, obviously, it's a chick singing it, singing about a dude. But it made me feel feel like I was back in that era, back in that, that time frame where I was just getting out of high school and college was this grandiose party and life is meant for exploration and discovery. And that song tapped into this side of me being a hopeless romantic the, you know the the kid who always wanted to get the girl yeah and so i was so dude i'm telling you like i was hooked that song hooked me wow so i created a taylor swift 1989 playlist on spotify and i have not been able to crawl out of that whole sense so like currently, present day, yes, I still listen to everything else I've always listened to, but I am, I have been on this shameless female vocalist kick yeah. since then. And like, uh, like now I'm Taylor Swift ride or die. We've talked about this before where, you know, lately you have... Uh, in the last you know couple of years where female driven artists you've been like the Japanese house for example is another oh example. yeah oh my goodness yeah where is that coming from and is it what what is it about right now that's gaining your attention from those type of artists I, I've asked myself that question a lot because it is all of these female-led bands or female artists, they are such a deviation from 
everything I've ever listened to that it's interesting to me in of itself, right? So it started with Taylor Swift. And and I'll be honest, like I've reflected on this a lot. And it, it all goes back to who I was at 17, 18, 19 years old. I was a scrawny nerd who didn't know who he was, who felt uncomfortable in his own skin, but at his core knew that he wanted to love and to be loved. And he always wanted to chase the cute girl, always wanted the thing that he saw depicted in the movies. And I have zero shame saying that because I would challenge anyone out there to tell me that they have never wanted that too. So mm-hmm. when when I listen to these female-led acts or artists, obviously, like we have to acknowledge, right? Like it, generally speaking, it's a female singing lyrics to a song that more or less, more times than not, are directed toward a male. And, you know, I I certainly listen to female artists who I know are lesbian, and we may think at surface level they're singing to a male, but they're actually singing to another female. And I think that's, I think it's beautiful. And I think it's, it's amazing that I can still listen to it and still feel like they're singing to me. Mm -hmm. But I feel like when I'm listening to these women sing and listen, I'm going to be the first one to tell you, I've gone to see some of these female artists and I'm the oldest one in the crowd by a (laughs) decade plus sometimes. Okay. So that's a little bit of a culture shock, right? It's kind of a, a very subtle, calm, like reality check, but also I don't give a shit because I'm there because the music speaks to me. I love it and I respect the artist, but it taps into and it speaks to the young adolescent male in me who is still to this day as a 40 plus year old man, a hopeless romantic. And I think that's okay. I really do. I think it's okay like for your heart to want the stuff you see in the movies. We, we want it because at, for whatever reason, it feels right for us in that moment. And I, I can't tell anyone that they can't feel that. I can't tell anyone that they're not allowed to feel that. All I can tell you is that at 41 years old, almost 42, I am perfectly okay saying I'm still mar- happily married after 10 years. I'm still a hopeless romantic and and I I still fantasize about being a 17-year-old kid or an 18-year-old kid studying abroad and meeting a girl on a train and falling in love with her in Europe, right? We like we all wanted that. There there are haters of Taylor Swift. Sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And not just, you know, at the superficial level, but even like right. with people that care about music. Haters going to hate, 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 hate. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you got to shake it off, right? Yeah. 
recently, a band called Crosses has been speaking to you. Uh, how is that? If you know Crosses, you know Crosses. If you don't know Crosses, uh, the singer of Crosses is also the singer of Deftones, Chino. Um, okay. This is one of his side projects. They've uh, they released a couple songs, then they did a formal EP, a seven inch, I think. And then they did an album, which was essentially their first three EPs, I think, put together. You can find Crosses on Spotify. The song, the first song off the, uh, the compiled album is called This Is a Trick. It is certainly a deviation musically from Deftones, but if you know Deftones, it is definitely... Chino. This song is me after 30 plus years reconciling with my own demons. So every song that I've ever listened to because I cheated on a girlfriend or broke up with a girl or regret I have because I made a very regrettable mistake after having too much to drink. This song, for me, is a purge of all of that. This is me facing those demons. The album's pretty intense. It's pretty dark, but it's pretty fantastic. And I'm, I'm very excited to say that I got to see them on, I think, their first and only national tour. I saw them at the Crowfoot in Pontiac. Yeah, a few yeah, a few years ago, fantastic like holy smokes! Dan and the team at the Crowfoot are absolutely amazing. Venue is super intimate. That's awesome. What is it about music that makes us want to listen to it? Why why do we appreciate it as humans? Music is so personal that it's universal, and it is so universal that it can be personal. Yeah. I have said this since I was an emo kid in my late teens and early 20s that that music moves me, right? Yeah. And and I've hung on to that and we've all heard it. Okay, so what blows me away? Like what like what legitimately stops me in my tracks to this day is when I may be at a party or at a gathering, right? You and I met at a, at a housewarming party for a mutual friend. And we bonded over a band, over music. What blows me away is when you are at parties like that, when you're at anywhere, anywhere, and you can ask anyone, so what music do you listen to? And people say, oh, I listen to everything. Someone asks you what music you listen to, do not, do not answer, well, I listen to everything because I will rake you over the coals. You don't listen to everything. So it's either, and they're often the same person. It's the person who says, I listen to everything. Or it's the person who says, and this is the one that I cannot wrap my head around, who says, yeah, well, I just I don't really listen to music. I just kind of listen to like I don't know, like whatever's on the radio. I just kind of listen to it for the beat. I don't really know like like bands and I don't really like know songs. 
because it is so, so universal, so universal. There is at least one song out there in the universe that when you listen to it, I do not have to explain it to you, but you will know when it happens, that song moves you. When that moment happens, that's why music is important and that's why we listen to it. Yeah, totally. Well, Jay, this was awesome. I'm glad that we got to talk. Kyle, it is my absolute pleasure, dude. Thank you for the invite. Thank you for listening to me ramble. It was an absolute pleasure, man. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for listening to Soundtrack with Kyle Lichty. Each person interviewed has created a playlist of the very songs that have impacted their life. If you are interested in listening to their playlist, you can head straight to our website, at soundtrack.fireside.fm. Click on Soundtrack Playlist and it will take you straight to their playlist on Spotify. If you like the podcast and want to know more, check out our Instagram at at soundtrackpodcast or leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice. Join us next time on Soundtrack.